And good afternoon. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. It's midday at the movies. Big news from the Labor Department. 517,000 jobs added in January. That blows out of the water the expectations for most economists. We have the lowest unemployment rate in the United States since 1969. Over the last two years, 12 million jobs added to the U.S. economy. Two of those jobs, co-captains of the Baruch College uh, volleyball team, are held by my guests this <laughs> afternoon. Jed Dietz, the founding director of the Maryland Film Festival and Ann Hornaday, film critic for the Washington Post. They, they freelanced with George Santos back in the day. There's <laughs> nothing we didn't do with George Santos back in the day. <laughs> right. Exactly. At least did it all. As he like, describes All the things. Yeah, exactly. I mean, literally nothing. You just, <laughs> yes. you, you, the imagination is not wide enough to figure out something that Mr. Santos has not said he has done. But it's nice to see you here in Studio A. Indeed. And listeners, it would be great to hear from you about what you're checking out these days in theaters or streaming at home. 410-662-8780 or email midday at WIPR.org. You can tweet us at midday WIPR. So, Jed, Sundance Film Festival back live this year for the first time since COVID, but they yep. also did uh, an online version. Yep. And you checked it out. I guess you didn't actually go this year. You, that, you usually do, right? But, yeah, I usually do and would love to have gone, but I've been traveling, so I did all the online stuff. Mm -hmm. So pass. What, what's the big takeaway? Well, I, I mean, the first thing to say is just how incredibly vigorous the art form is. It's really thrilling. And this doesn't mean every movie I saw and every minute of every movie I saw was great. But it's really the energy worldwide in making movies is both fiction and nonfiction. They're, it's really extraordinary to see and experience. It's, it's great. So what are your predictions for the, the ones that are going to come out as, you know, the huge mega hit? Well, we know things that got bought which were Flora and Son and Fair Play were the two big buys that each went for $20 million to Netflix and Apple, interestingly enough, so not to movie studios. Um, and I think both of them are good. Um, the uh, Fair Play is a full of story about a, a, a couple that she then gets promoted above him in a hedge fund firm um, and it turns everything on its head um, both inside the firm and between them and it's beautifully done it's uh, it's a really exciting movie um, by a, a new filmmaker what's the usual turnaround time for something like that if they sell a movie at Sundance for 20 million bucks that's a lot of money you'd, you'd think that you'd want to get it up and running quicker than not right? you would think so i mean netflix and apple have had mixed results on have are are trying to figure this out and have had mixed results about whether to even use theaters own gleberman's already written a piece about these two films and his fear that they'll never play movie theaters that they would just be used as streaming movies and that might be true. We'll we'll find out. There are a lot of movies at Sundance that came in. There was a, a wonderful movie called A Thousand and One that focused at help finance. Um, and that's due out, I think, in March. So I think we'll see that oh, coming, coming in. Right up. And there are a couple of documentaries. There was the Michael Fox documentary and the Brooke Shields documentary, both of which were very good, that are due out quickly. Yeah, the um, Brooke Shields, I, th I guess, is going to be available on Hulu fairly soon. Yes. You know, in a couple it, of parts. Yeah. And Michael's, Michael Fox, I, I mean, there's always a little bit of possibility they'll 
do a theatrical with one of these things, but we don't know. But I think they'll they got good response and will will come out pretty quickly. Yeah, and and you know we we go through this a lot. We talk about this a lot. Um, the studios deciding whether to go streaming only or theater for a little bit and or, or a long bit, and then mm-hmm. there um, there was this movie that we actually saw uh, at our house. Glass Onion, mm-hmm. um, which is the follow-up to Knives Out. Mm-hmm. I thought Knives Out was terrific. Mm-hmm. I loved it. I thought Glass Onion just failed mm-hmm. miserably. Mm-hmm. And, and that was just me and Linnell. <laughs> she, I mean, she didn't like it either. Mm-hmm. Um, great cast, unbelievable set. The music was horrible, but, you know, who cares? And uh, But it's... it's uh, it was a decision. I guess it was only in theaters very, very yeah. briefly. But, yeah. And does that help? Does that hurt? What does it do? You know. Well, this is the question, and there are many people. I, among them, who and I think Ryan Johnson, the director, among them, who wished Netflix would have um, kept it in theaters longer because that was the movie. I mean, I every year I look for a movie that I can tell people to go to over the holidays with their family. I mean, that's such a time-honored tradition. And Knives Out was that movie that year, right? That was It was a huge hit, largely because it was such a good movie. To, it was multi-generational, you know, and um, it played from Thanksgiving and to Christmas. And a great whodunit, and you didn't exactly. know who did it until the very no, end. It, it, was, was it, just, it just sort of checked all those boxes. And I think Glass Onion, to your point, you know, maybe it wasn't as strong as the first one, but I do think it could have sort of filled that that niche. And instead, you know, we had a lot of really downbeat indies that we might talk about at Oscar time, some of which are up for Oscars. I mean, I remember I spoke to one theater owner and he's like, I have, you know, for my holiday fair this year, I have, um, I can't remember, I think he said Tar and Banshees of Sharon." Very downbeat yeah. movie, you know. Not not something you can just say. Oh, take Granny, you know. Right. Take the whole family and go. So uh, that was. If you have to eat the fruitcake and go see Tar, that, both in exactly. the same day, that's just that's too much. Yeah, no, no one human being can take that. It's just yeah. it's it's a very delicate balance. So, um, but I I think that the question we all that we don't have the answer to is Netflix's calculus about what makes sense to them. In other words. Whatever they lost in theatrical box office by not keeping it in theaters, I, I don't think that computes. I, it's, just, it's not part of their business model. You know, they're not a theatrical distributor, mm-hmm. although now they are an ad. You know, they do have this sort of ad platform, so they're kind of coming around to conventional modes of distribution more. But, I mean, I just think that's the rub is that you can make that appeal to them and say, oh, you left money on the table or you you, you lost promotional possibilities for the for the online you know the netflix version and they'll just shrug and say so what like that's not their business but i i I would just say i agree with you totally i saw it at glass onion at home also and i i liked it better than you guys did but it needs to be seen in a movie theater i so wish i'd seen it in a movie theater because there's so i mean the sets were amazing yeah yeah. and and the information flow is Mm -hmm. is it's like a fire hose coming at you and stuff and it's part of the fun of it because you're trying to figure out you know the mysteries and that's what made knives out work so well and i think they made a horrible mistake financially for sure because they opened with over $16 million in that opening weekend and probably left $100 million on the table. And I would argue they left word of mouth on the table because that would have been the best marketing. So the word of mouth really now only happens if it's in theaters? Why is that? Why wouldn't there be word of mouth if people are seeing it on streaming? It it gets covered differently and people have a different experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think if they had opened 
and played the three weeks. And I don't, I mean, like Ann said, it's their movie. They're going to do with it what they want. And I literally think she's right. They are trying to figure this out as they go. But I think Netflix is, is has sort of bought the religious belief that they're disruptors and they can't play movie theaters, even though they own a couple of movie theaters now. And I think that's a mistake. I think why not use all the tools you've got to get an artwork, a movie, out into the into the public. And I think this is a great example where they would have helped themselves at home if they had played movie theaters longer. But, but I again, I don't know who's making <clears throat> like you make that point. I think a lot of us out in you know in the journalistic world are making that point. And either it's not getting through or. They have a completely different calculation of what a success Ted is. Ted Sarandos has never called me for yeah, my advice. Yeah, right. But I mean, you're not <laughs> the only one. Ted sure. Sarandos? He's, he's the head of Netflix. So. Yeah. Um, That's quite a job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, I made the same argument for, for uh, Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, last year. You know, I thought yeah, that I, agree. I thought that really could I like that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I think if that had been available in theaters, a lot of us would have gone to see it in theaters mm-hmm. as a fun night out, you know, like that old-fashioned dinner in a movie kind of a movie. Well, for for me, the, with Glass Onion, it, it, Knives Out was so great. Mm-hmm. We loved it so much. We were really excited about seeing Glass Onion. And it was it was a whodunit, but by the end of it, it was like, who cares? I mean, I just, I, I was not you engaged, engaged emotionally. Right. And I, I, the premise was just not nearly as yeah. good as, as the other one, I thought. But, you know, uh, so whether that had happened happened in a theater or not, I'm not sure the word of mouth would have been any different. I mean, I, and I it's hard it, to prove a negative too. I mean, yes, you know, right, like sure, it, right. if they're if they're dug in on this st- strategy that they're so dedicated to, and I agree with you, they are. Um, you know, there's no counterfactual, like there's no countervailing evidence, you know, to prove that they're wrong. And speaking of countervailing evidence, I'm well, really interested in a piece that you wrote, uh, Anne, and a lot of other folks have covered. The fact that this woman, uh, Andrea Riseborough, oh, yes. won uh, or got a, an, an Oscar nomination for Best Actress in a low-budget movie called Two Leslie. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't make a whole lot of money, didn't seem to get a whole lot of buzz, but she got a whole lot of support from all sorts of people to be nominated for this thing, and it was controversial that she was. So... Why would it be controversial just because the movie's small and it's an indie movie? I mean, there's plenty of people from indie movies and sure. stuff who get nominated. Especially for this year. Yeah. Um, no, it wasn't that it was small. It was that the Academy is a very guide. You know, they have tons of guidelines. They have guidelines for everything in terms of what's what's appropriate in terms of campaigning and voting and voting procedures and and a lot of their guidelines have to do with using the Academy. <laughs> as a kind of portal to reach potential voters. And if you don't use that and kind of do your own thing, um, they can get a little persnickety. And in this case, it was the director of the film and his wife are very well connected in Hollywood. And his wife, the actress Mary McCormick, especially took it upon herself to to bang the drum for this, for this perf- perf- performance. And so she went to her friends, and one of them was Francis Fisher, another actor who also became really passionate. They went directly to people, asking them to tweet about it, put it on their Instagram. Some pretty big name people. Huge name. I mean, the A-listers. And they did. And it really snowballed. So these are other actors, directors, people you know, yeah. with a lot of uh, clout in Hollywood. Yeah, Edward Norton, Charlize Theron, Gwyneth Paltrow, Jennifer Aniston. And so they have these enormous reaches on social media. 
And I think what I think specifically the the controversy, such as it was, was that one of those guidelines is that you are not allowed to reach out to individual Academy members. I think that's one of them. And you're also not allowed to disparage other nominees, potential nominees. And in one of her tweets, I think, Frances Fisher did name some of the front runners for Best Actress. And that was that set off a red flag as being very close to the edge of not not kosher. So, Jada, is, is this like, you know, if you're running for student council president, you're not supposed to vote for yourself to be well, humble? It's, it, I, I think it, it ends right. I, I, I think the Academy is worried about too much game playing around the awards. There's obviously emotion, there's obviously nostalgia, and always has been, always will be. But I think the Golden Globes are still sort of looming, and they had gotten sort of ridiculous in the purchasing of awards that habit that had happened. And the Academy is very sensitive to that and trying to keep it the playing field as level as possible. And they've put up lots of rules, like the studios used to send out really lavish presentation packages of DVDs when back in the day when that was the way you sent out the films. And that got all caught off, cut off. And they said, you just can't start sending presents to people and stuff like that. And so they've set up a bunch of other rules. And in this case, I think because it was all actors, that's the biggest group in the Academy. And that worried them. And they really looked at her nomination to Pull it maybe to pull it back, which they've done a few times. Yeah, so there's precedent for that. We're actually there making is. a nomination and then withdrawing it. Yeah, and when they think these rules get violated, and I think in this case they, I think, appropriately backed off. There's no reason. I mean, Andrea Riseborough is. It's not her fault. She did a. She threw herself into this film. I don't think it's a particularly good film, but I and I think the performance is a actor's showpiece, but it's. I don't think it even stacks up. But even Kate Blanchett, one of the other nominees, was one of the people pitching for people to go see this movie. So it, mm-hmm. I, I think the Academy finally backed off and said, this is innocent. It's what it is. And well, except they did say they are going to continue to look at I think they're probably going to continue to look at what Frances Fisher did and Mary McCormick, oh, frankly. I mean, I don't think – I think you're right. They they absolutely absolved Andrea yeah. Riseborough personally, but they intimated on their at their meeting on Tuesday that they're going to continue to look at it. Well, there could be some wrist slapping in the There future. might very well be, but there'll be beautiful wrists. <laughs> yes, beautiful wrists. <laughs> and tone. With Harry Winston bracelets mm-hmm, exactly. adorned. By the way, That's before we go to a break, we have an email from Ronnie. <laughs> My favorite film of 2022 was an Australian production called You Won't Be Alone. Oh, I love that movie. Do you like that one? Yeah, I did. Did you see that one, Ann? I missed that one. Uh, I missed Sorry. that one, too, but of course, <laughs> I have missed <laughs> Most of life for the last 30 years. Uh, The movie is in uh, uh, Macedonia, the 19th century Macedonia. A young girl is kidnapped uh, and then transformed into a witch by an ancient spirit. Curious about life as a human, the witch accidentally kills a peasant in the nearby village. Well, who among us hasn't done that? (laughs) And then takes her victim shape to live life in her skin. Her curiosity ignited. She continues to wield this horrific power to understand what it means to be human. So that's an interesting 
description from Ronnie. So we will talk about some of the other movies that folks liked in 2022. And the Washington Post published a whole list of movies <laughs> that you shouldn't have liked. So if you did like it, shame on you. Jed Dietz is the founding director of the Maryland Film Festival. Ann Hornaday is a film critic for the Washington Post. Her book is called Talking Pictures, How to Watch Movies. To join the fun, 410-662-8780 or email midday at wypr.org. You can tweet us at midday WIPR. Don't go nowhere. We'll be right back. This is 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's midday, midday at the movies. By the way, coming up Monday on our show, it's the Midday Health Watch with Dr. Lena Wen. We'll talk about what the end of the emergency declaration for COVID-19 means and new guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics about childhood obesity. Plus, Erica Bridgeford and Latrice Gant, the co-organizers of the Baltimore Peace Movement, will join me to talk about the activities of this Peace Promise Weekend in our city. That starts at 1 o'clock today. So if you have just joined us, it is, in fact, Midday at the Movies with Ann Hornaday, film critic for The Washington Post and the author of Talking Pictures, How to Watch Movies, along with Jed Dietz, the founding director of the Maryland Film Festival. We'd love to hear what your favorite flicks of 2022 were, as well as what your least favorite movies from 2022 were. Why not? 410-662-8780. Our email's midday at wypr.org. You can tweet us at midday. WIPR. So uh, Mike in Hamden says, I really liked Living. It would have been a good one for Family Fair during the holidays. The audience at Cinema Sunday at the Charles uniformly loved it as well. And what a treat to give Bill Nighy a starring role, and he knocked it out of the park. Bill Nighy gets so much supporting work, and I think his presence makes every film he's in one star better. That's mm -hmm. like what they say about Gene Hackman as well as Jim Broadbent. Who, Mike says, I think he's the best character actor of my lifetime. So he hopes Nighy wins mm. the Oscar. And so, Anne, you, you alluded to this, that there were some other surprises in the, in the nominations. We're going to talk about, you know, who's who's going to win and who should win uh, in depth next time. But um, there are some names that are not household names by any means. Absolutely. Bill Nye was a really pleasant surprise. Paul Mescal, who was in this little movie called After Sun, uh, by Charlotte Wells. That was a complete surprise to me by uh, Brian Tyree Henry, uh, who was in Causeway, a movie I still have not caught up with. But um, it was really, I mean, and I think that it, it um, also supports the Andrea Riseborough cause that these actors really are watching these movies and they are very highly attuned to these performances. You know, I mean, it's not it's not just influence campaigns that, you know, it's 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 getting them to watch the movies, but they will they will reward small movies with great performances in them. It's not It's not that completely outlandish. Well, in the actor category, I think all five nominees 
are first-time nominees, and that's the first time since 1935 that's happened. Yeah, that's extraordinary. Yeah. And Meryl Streep wasn't nominated. (laughs) That's extraordinary, too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Although Kate Blanchett was in the actress category. That's right. She's the Meryl Streep wannabe. Um, Let's listen to a clip from Women Talking. This is a movie we touched on really briefly last time, but I want to talk about it a little bit more. Um, This is at the Charles Theater currently. I want to stay and fight. But won't we lose the fight to the men and be forced to forgive them anyway? I want to stay and fight, too. No one's surprised that you do. All you do is fight. Is this really how we are to decide the fates of all the women in this colony? Just another vote where we put an X next to our position? I thought we were here to do more than that. You mean talk more about forgiving the men and doing nothing? Everything else is insane. But none of you will listen to reason. Why are you here with us? Why are you still here with us if that is what you believe? Just leave with the rest of the do-nothing women. She is my daughter, and I want her here with us. Is forgiveness that's forced upon us true forgiveness? Keep nonsense like that to yourself, please. Well, it's true to its title, Women Talking. That's a lot of talking there. (laughs) The only thing I've heard about this movie is a tweet from Wendell Pierce, the actor, who was disappointed that this movie has no characters of color. Oh. And, And that was, you know, his take on it. Um, but I've heard good things about these performances and stuff. Um, what do you think, Ann? You know, I'm this. This is the um, adaptation of a Miriam Taves book based on a real, an astonishing true story that took place in within a Mennonite colony in Colum- in the country of Colombia. It's now been transposed. We're not exactly sure where it's happening, but it seems to be America. Um, and it's got a sort of timeless quality to it, but it's been adapted by Sarah Polly, who I think is an incredibly gifted filmmaker. She did a, her first movie that she directed was called Away From Her with just a shattering performance by Julie Christie, just a beautiful, beautiful film, and then a brilliant documentary called Stories We Tell. This is not my favorite Sarah Polly directorial effort. Um, as you can imagine, it, it mostly takes place in this one location. It is all these women talking. It's kind of like a 12 angry men, um, you know, closed space, claustrophobic, talk, talky picture. Um, and I just think some of her aesthetic choices, you can tell there that the language is, is sort of mannered and rarefied in a certain way. And, and I don't, that started to become really monotonous to me and I, frankly I wasn't crazy about the visual language it's it's got this kind of desaturated palette that gives it that timeless quality but I also thought it kind of sapped it of energy um, but it, it deals with issues of um, sexual abuse sexual violence moral injury what how to respond do you, you know do you stay and fight do you leave do you do nothing and it engages issues on this kind of um, allegorical plane that we're all grappling with in our own society in terms of men and women and power and redemption and um, bystanderism and, and just a lot of really important subjects that yeah. are worth addressing. Cool. And, and Jed, uh, your challenge is to see if you can work the word desaturated into your comments. Because <laughs> that is well, impressive. I really enjoy that. <laughs> Easy. I agree Shop with Anne when she said it was desaturated. <laughs> I thought that was a that was a very uh, good point. I, I I do think it's important to remember the title because this is what this movie is about. I think Anne's comments are really good. I found it actually emotional in a way that totally surprised me. I thought this the, this group of actors no slouches here. I mean, Rooney Mara's in it. 
Yeah, Claire Foy's in it. Jesse Buckley's in it. I mean, it's a wonderful. Francis McDormand. Francis yeah. McDormand. And briefly, she's Very not briefly. in the barn, uh, in the main part of the discussion. But but I think this the and and to see a woman writer, director, actor, Sarah Pauly grappling with these issues that are very much uh, on the table right now i i found the whole thing just totally fascinating mm-hmm. and the mennonite i mean the, the, these women are going to be killed if depending on how they behave i mean they're really in danger so there's a huge at risk here and i i think the movie works yeah, cool. so, but i but i think it was desaturated yeah, there you go there <laughs> you go you, you can't say it enough for me let me tell you um so that's at the charles theater another one at the charles here in baltimore turn every page this is a documentary about robert caro the, the, the great uh, biographer of lyndon johnson and uh, writer of many other great books and his editor robert gottlieb who's also at the the new yorker it's a documentary and uh, a lot of good buzz about this one as well Ian. yeah it's just delightful and you know if if people recognize those names, they'll want to see this movie because it takes us behind the scenes of this remarkable professional relationship and prickly and odd personal relationship. This kind of you wouldn't even call it a friendship. You know, they're they're they wouldn't even agree to be interviewed in the same room. Um, and it's not that they're hostile or that there's animus, but there is just this certain kind of um, accord that they've reached that really values uh, autonomy and, and space. Um, so it's really the portrait of these two kind of eccentric guys. And I was particularly taken, I mean, to me, it was, um, and you know, the, the, the conceit of it is that Caro is now working on volume five of his masterpiece, Lyndon Johnson biography. He's 88 in the film. Gottlieb is 90 or approaching 90 in the film. And now it's really a race against the clock. You know, we want them to finish this before, you know, while they're both still alive, obviously. So there is this kind of tick-tock to it that gives it narrative tension. But what I came away with was just such even deeper respect for Robert Caro and how he has approached his writing and his journalism as um, as civic duty. You know, I mean, it's he is such a beautiful lyrical writer, and obviously he and his wife Ina are are meticulous researchers, but it's that sense of purpose and service, you know, that he brings to it that just really, really moved me. Let's listen to a clip. This is a clip from Turn Every Page. Two guys with the best in their field. Bob Carroll, the greatest political writer of our time. Bob Gottlieb, the greatest editor of his time. Robert Carroll's in his 80s, and everybody wants the story to be finished. He's running out of time. He's industrious. He would hate to think he was like me. <laughs> he does the work. I do the cleanup. Then we fight. We will get this next book when he's damn well ready to give it to us, and not until then. Oh, that's what we got to date. For them, words matter. Mood matters. Rhythm matters. Commas matter. Semicolons matter. And the fights go on. Sometimes I'm looking for an adjective. I make a whole list. But if he overuses them, it doesn't read well. We've had some real fights about sections that he's wanted to cut out. It was not that I was trying to tear his bleeding heart out of his chest. They both want the best book possible. They both do. And they both want it for each other. Well, if he's looking for an adjective, I'd go with desaturated personally, but that's just me. But this is really, you know, what a relationship here. I mean, any relationship between an editor and a writer can be, you know, fraught, but this is something. It, it's really unbelievable. And there are two, you just can't overstate what giants these two guys are. I mean, the impact of 
at their death, the world will have had a huge vacuum in the literary side of it. But in their first book that they that Gottlieb edited with Caro was The Power Broker by Robert Moses. And the first job was the manuscript was delivered to him. It was like 1,200 pages. He had to get it down to 700, he felt, to even publish the book, to literally make it fit between the covers of a book that you could publish. So they joke a lot about arguing over semicolons, et cetera, et cetera. But, it, you know, you had to cut 35% out of this guy's work. That was job one. And they get through that creating yeah. how to get off on the wrong foot yeah <laughs> right. exactly. and and, the, and they and it's it's a wonderful book i mean i think that alone forget the lyndon johnson work if that's all he'd done is asserted in this movie i think it's true yeah. it's still selling you know i mean it's a masterful work joyce carol oates refers to the things that she has to cut from things that she writes as her little her little darlings yes, exactly. <laughs> you must kill your little you darlings. must kill your little <laughs> yes. darlings yeah. um this movie uh and that you mentioned uh because there's a best actor nominee uh, oscar nomination for paul mescal uh after sun mm. let's listen to a little clip of that i think it's nice that we share the same sky what do you mean well, like, sometimes at playtime, I look up to the sky, and if I can see the sun, then I think about the fact that we can both see the sun, so even though we're not actually in the same place and we're not actually together, we kind of are in a way, you know? Like, we're both underneath the same sky, so kind of together. Somewhere out there, we're both underneath the same skies. It's the same. You know, Disney made a lot of money on that song. Uh, After Sun, this is uh, available, by the way, on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, Google Play, and YouTube. So this is an easy one to find. But um, this, this, you know, that, that kid sounds charming. She was wonderful. Uh, her name is Frankie Corio. Yeah, she's she's fantastic. Um, and. Again, this is by Charlotte Wells, her feature writing, directing debut. I think a really, really assured one, very, um, very effective. It's it's this father-daughter relationship told very elliptically and impressionistically. So you're not exactly, you know, you know that he's not her custodial parent and that they're on this vacation together that looks like kind of his time with her. Um you get that he's troubled, you know, that this that he's got some issues, but you're not exactly sure what they are. And and it's really it's told in this kind of fragmented way where Wells is not direct over directing us how to feel or, or what to think. But I just thought it was really beautifully beautifully done that way. And again, these two central performances were just extremely touching. Um, it's just a fascinating movie, so I really I would highly recommend people check it out. Yeah, good one. I mean, Jed, this is something that is you know another uh, indication of the the vibrancy of the art form at this point. Yeah, it's true. So this won the Maryland Filmmakers Fellowship uh, in screenplay stage, and it was a beautiful screenplay. But it's the kind of thing that hard to imagine anybody pitching this to a normal investment group in the film world because of really everything Anne said. It's this tiny little story on paper, a tiny little story about a father and a 12-year-old daughter. And her ability to execute this, filming during COVID in Turkey with a 12-year-old playing the daughter and this young 
wonderful actor, Paul Mescal, who was in the Hulu series Normal People. Um, and it will, I, we're going to hear a lot more of, I think, both of them if Frankie Gorio wants a career as she grows up. But it's it's wonderful. And the fact that it got recognized by the Academy alone, I mean, I wouldn't bet heavily on him winning, I guess. But it's great recognition for the film and for the work Charlotte Wells did in writing and directing. Yeah, and either way, the nomination is going to help the movie. So that's Yeah, good. for sure. And I will say, you'll never hear Losing My Religion the same way again. I'm just going to leave <laughs> it there. That's exactly All right. right. <laughs> okay. I'll take your word for it. Um, is an email from a listener, Rhea, who says, My favorite movie of 2022 was Nope. I was completely terrified and in love with all the details. The casting was perfect. I think Jordan Peele can do no wrong. And Rhea, I think I agree with you. I also love that it's a different type of alien film. And it's also about the history of film. Um, And goes on to say, a film I wasn't a fan of was We're All Going to the World's Fair. It's not that I hated it, but I expected more. To me, it was less horror and more coming-of-age drama. I saw it at the beginning of the year, and I still think about it. So perhaps it was really effective. Okay. I don't know. I don't know that movie. So. I don't know. But of course, you know, for me to say I don't know the movie <laughs> is just not saying much, because I don't know nothing. So I do want to talk about this piece in the Washington Post, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> where they did kind of a compendium of you and your fellow critic, mm-hmm. uh, is it Michael Michael O'Sullivan, of the movies that you guys didn't care so much for. Oh. And it's, it, I, I hate to, you know, <laughs> and be I'm a such propagator a of, of negativity <laughs> here. Know. But, you know, one of the ones, the very first one, there's Uh-oh. a picture uh, mm-hmm. here in the Washington Post, Austin Butler in Elvis. Elvis is at the top of the list. I started that movie and couldn't get through it. I couldn't finish it. Um, It was a lot of movie to take in. There was a lot of stuff going on. And I understand the second half was better than the first half. And I only saw the first half. So maybe that's just because my, you know, bad attention span. No, it's not you. It's, It's Baz. Um, it, this is Baz Luhrmann, the director, who is a he. He does all. He gives a lot of movie. You know, I mean, he's known <laughs> for that. And I think in this case, I think he made a couple of missteps, and then he made a couple of brilliant steps. The missteps were he chose to tell the story through Colonel Tom Parker, and he and he cast Tom Hanks to to do that. And I just I don't think it worked. I don't think that that conceit worked, and I don't think Hanks as Tom, Colonel Tom worked. And then he just has this frenetic filming style, racing us through those early years. And I think trying to capture that lightning in a bottle that Elvis was, and I, so I, I I understand that choice. I just don't think it was particularly useful, you know, and, and it was it was very disorienting and very destabilizing and, to your point, not very much fun to watch. The movie, for me, completely changed when, when Elvis gets to Vegas and starts that residency. And for some reason... I don't know if it was Lerman's filming style calmed down or I got used to it, but that's when I could really appreciate Austin Butler's performance. Yeah, he's really good. And he is really good. I mean, that's when I just, that's when I really sat up and I was with it for the rest. It also hues, I mean, at that point, even though I know Lerman's trying to kind of disrupt the bio, the musical biopic genre, which is so cliched and it's so kind of constrained by those beats. Um, it does still hue to those in a way that I found pretty corny and, and not particularly well written. So those were my negatives. But 
seriously, Austin Butler really was magnificent. Mm -hmm. Uh, Speaking of another one that's a lot of movie, Babylon is on this list, um, (laughs) which I've only seen the trailer for, and I was exhausted. I mean, I had to to take a vacation for a week after seeing the trailer. I was really, it it wore me out. But, uh, Jed, there's a listener, Mark, who says, what about EO, which is now playing at the Charles Theater? I know this is a movie that you've seen. It's about a donkey and the donkey's journey. So you're going to have to talk me into this one, dude. <laughs> well, because <laughs> right now I, I am uninclined. Well, I want to be a little careful here because the the director is a Polish guy named Jerzy Smolikowski, who has worked in film for a long time and also took uh, ten years off, twenty years off to paint when he was living in L.A. has has chosen. The Bresson film, O Hazard Balthazar, which is also about a donkey, as a, as a, and to write this sort of homage to it. But it's an experimental film. There are actually six donkeys in the movie playing one donkey, EO. And it's, it's sort of fascinating idea. How can you tell there's six donkeys? <laughs> I, because I saw the credits. Yeah. Donkeys <laughs> tend manage, to be very similar. Sure. Yeah. You know, their their teams made sure we knew there were six donkeys. All, oh, I see. Okay. Actually, all six donkeys in the world play this one. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, there was one that was on the set of Banshees of Michelle <laughs> right. didn't make That's it. I'm sorry to if say. If you're going to profile some, year, profile okay. a donkey because they all look the same. If you're going to see one donkey movie this year. Yeah, it's but it. it but it's really, and, and it's, I will not see one donkey movie this year. <laughs> but it's a speculation about creatures like donkeys and even hu- some humans who get ignored through the path of life. And it's, I, I, I don't think it's a perfect movie. I was pretty fascinated by the whole story as it evolves. But it is about a donkey. There you go. You can't, you know, at, at its core, it's a donkey movie. So, you know, it's going to be a little tough, you know. Right. Well, Oscars are in the middle of March. Yes. We are going to reconvene yep. in the beginning of March. Okay. And we will give our... Uh, you will you know, by that time have seen flawless. all of the movies and all the nominees. <laughs> of course. This goes without saying. Of course. Yes. I've been watching TV. I watched White Lotus and <laughs> oh. stuff. We should talk about that. Everybody loves White Lotus, mm. and I'm, not, I'm, I'm again. I'm veiled in negativity because it just it doesn't do it for me. And the music in White Lotus is horrid. It's just <laughs> I wanna, horrid. You need to There's do a you way need to do a show much of it. on. I want to hear more from you about the music of these things. I just the I'm problem fascinated. with White Lotus is that the the music in White Lotus is there is a a sound going on at every second of the movie, uh-huh. and it's a different thing. You know, and, and it's like oh, it's you too know, pushy. Look at my iPad. Well, you look at all the cool things I have in my iTunes library. It's just it drives me nuts. So. You know, yeah. I may, I'll, I'll try watching it with the sound off. Do you know what? I was impressed at Sundance this year. I heard a couple of absolutely exquisite music scores. Really, really beautiful well, music. I just want to put that. Maybe yeah. we can so circle we'll back when that. those Why come out. We'll yeah. talk about yeah. I'm a little picky when it comes to music. Well, I'll, well, I'll, you I'll agree. You know, Anne Hornaday, film critic for The Washington Post. Her book's called Talking Pictures, How to Watch Movies. Jed Dietz, the founding director of the Maryland Film Festival. Merci beaucoup. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Coming up, theater critic Jay Wynn Russick joins me with a review about a new production at the Everyman Theater in Baltimore. We'll talk about Jump on the other side of a quick break. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is 88.1 WYPR.